Hello, I'm Wayne Park, and welcome to Oikonomics, a podcast about the science of ministry, work, administration, and the summing up of everything. Keep coming back for relevant teachings and talks on these subjects and more. Please enjoy the show. We are reading through Henry Nouwen's In the Name of Jesus and talking about the idea of holiness amidst wholeness and how important it is uh, that these two ideas, holiness and wholeness, are inextricably linked and uh, integrated. And it's important for us not just to be whole, but also holy. Uh, Not just to be holy, but also to be whole. Now, another important theme that Nowen talks about extensively is power and his own self-conscious awareness of it as he deliberately relinquishes his esteemed positions at Notre Dame, Yale, Harvard Divinity, and moves into community amongst people with severe intellectual disabilities at large. So in this regard, Uh, He does speak explicitly about power um, in certain parts, but I would say it's woven throughout his entire discourse in a self-conscious way. He is aware that he has given up significant power. Now, as much as this is admirable, and it is truly a model for us to follow, I find myself still wishing for a more critical engagement with the idea of power particularly for leaders undergoing vocational formation both in the church as well as in the marketplace. Not all of us can enjoy the luxury of giving up our jobs to live in humbling environments. And neither should that be the norm for all of us. Um, Some of us are actually called to remain in our places of vocation. And therefore, what Nowen has gone through, again, while admirable, might not be the path for many of us um, reading this book. So what I'm going to do is read a passage from Nowen. And what I'd like to attempt along the way is to critically engage the idea of power as it pertains to Christian leadership. And I will be reading from pages 75 to 76, selections here and there, uh, jumping around a bit. And as I read what Nowen is saying, I'd like to discourse on some thoughts that I've had about power as well. Let me begin and set the stage on in uh, page 75. Nowen says, The main reason so many people have left the church during the past decades in France, Germany, Holland, and also in Canada and America the word power easily comes to mind. Now it's interesting that Nowen starts with Europe. He ends up in North America. Uh, Indeed, we are seeing a decline in American Christianity that is quite similar to that of Europe in recent and past generations. Now I still wonder if power is the culprit, if that is essentially the main problem with the West today. I'm not sure about that conclusion, um, uh, I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical of all answers that have a sociological basis to them. 
Um, much is already exhaustively spoken about power from a sociological vantage point, uh, but the influence, and I might add the bankruptcy of the sociological discourse is not lost on me. Um, maybe if I can put it a little bit more mildly, I am aware, I am, I am very much aware of the limits of the sociological discourse. So if we are going to criticize the West and say, well, power is the source of all problems, for me, that, that is a quick response. It's an easy response. It's one that I'm not entirely convinced about, uh, simply because I'm not sure that the sociological discourse is a good framework for uh, diagnosing the West's ills. Uh, frankly, it is my view that we all exercise power, every single one of us. Now, some of you might recoil at that sentiment. Uh, how can you say that we all have power? Clearly, in society, isn't it evident that some of us have no power and some of us have too much power? And I would agree with that. Some have more and some have significantly less power. Yes, I agree that there are varying degrees of power that exist in society. But what I am trying to assert is that it is still, power is still something that every human being exercises. Whether we have it to a great deal or whether we do not have it, we all exercise it because it's in our nature. Um, even if we have very little of it, we still use the little that we have to exercise power. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that we're all playing the game. We're all playing the game. I think Tolkien's tale, uh, Lord of the Rings, illustrates this quite well, that even hobbits, in the end, are ultimately susceptible. Now, of course, there are varying degrees of lust for power in the different individuals. Um, there's the Saurons of the world that are completely maniacal in their drive towards power. There are those that are greatly tempted by power, like Boromir. Um, but the moral seems to be in this, in this story of Lord of the Rings that every person, even the lowliest hobbit, is unable to turn it down when it's offered. Incidentally, that's why the character of Galadriel, if you're into Lord of the Rings, um, it's why the character of Galadriel is so interesting to me, that when tempted with the ring of power, uh, she's, certainly, um, she's certainly enticed, she's drawn to it, and then she undergoes this brief transformation of what she could be with that kind of power. But then she turns it down. And she says words that still send chills up and down my spine. She says, I pass the test. I will diminish and go into the West and remain Galadriel. For me, that is the consummate statement of someone who knows power, that knows the exercise of power, that is even tempted by the exercise, and in that realism is able to turn it down. I think that's the lesson right there. It's the people that deny the existence of power, that they say, I have no power, that in many ways become most susceptible to it when it is finally offered to them. So the case that I'm making is that we all exercise power. We have it to varying degrees, yes, 
but at the same time, we're all exercising it, whether we have great or little power. My hope today is to make us just a little bit more self-aware of our own bent towards it. Just as Jesus says in Matthew 10, be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Um, my hope is to make us just a little bit more shrewder and a little less naive. That, come on, face it. You may not be a person of influence or great power or authority, but you do have some and you do exercise it. So I think the objective is not just being wary of the people around us, which I think is symptomatic of the sociological discourse, that those people there have power. They're the ones who are the bad ones. I'd like to actually instill less of a people wariness and more of a self-wariness, a self-wariness. You see, we could talk about the sociological discourse. My agenda is to make us more aware of our style towards power the way we each individually lust after it, the way we seek it, whether that's through advancement or attention, whether it's through accolade or affection, or whether we are seeking influence or intimacy. How do you exercise power is the question. Now, there are some people in this world that recognize and embrace the pursuit of power uh, quite unapologetically and, for that matter, uncritically. And uh, I look at that and it makes me wince somewhat. Uh, for example, when I'm at the airport and I see in the bookstores Sun Tzu's The Art of War selling ubiquitously, catering to the business class. Do you know what you're reading? Or maybe if they're uh, more on the Western side of philosophy, Machiavelli's The Prince. And some people will read that book like an instruction manual. Dear Lord, Machiavelli, I would say, should be read, but as a study in developing Western thought, not so much as a how-to to advance myself in the boardroom. This is, this is a, it's a twisted way of, of appropriating power, really. That's what it is. You see, in Western thought, what Machiavelli, especially in his, in his book, The Prince, what he was onto was talking about a new way of being in the world where the good, the honest, the noble, these were no longer standards. He was heralding the beginning of the end of metaphysics, universals, any sense of the good, and in fact, any moral system for that matter, is now being replaced with power, realpolitik, maneuvering. Whenever you find a way to beat them at their own game by maneuvering quicker, by being faster or stronger. In some ways, we are appropriating this kind of thinking of the prince. Machiavelli was onto something. He understood that in reality, 
kill or be killed is the only way to live. And therefore, kill faster, kill quicker, kill more completely, and kill more effectively. You can see why power is so dangerous. And hopefully, we can begin to self-reflect and see, sadly, I know what that is. Centuries later, the philosopher Nietzsche would actually advance this notion uh, even further. This notion that Machiavelli was onto in his book, The Prince, about realpolitik, maneuvering, and power as, as the way to, as the, as the good, as the uh, backwards notion of good. Uh, Nietzsche would talk about something called the will to power, the will to power. And the will to power is uh, essentially drawing Machiavelli's conclusion to its ultimate end and basically saying that God is dead. That is what Nietzsche is famous for saying. Um, I'm glad that I can actually bring that sentence, that phrase up for you in one of your first classes at seminary because you'll have to deal with it. Uh, it's, it's something that might frighten you. Here's what I want to say about that phrase, God is dead. In many ways, Nietzsche is right. He's right. God is dead. Now, that does not mean that's not to say that I don't believe in God anymore or that the God of Israel, um, Jesus Christ himself, that I believe that he, it's, it's, it, it's nullified. That's not what I'm saying at all. In fact, if you understand philosophically what Nietzsche is saying, you'll see that he is making a, a very, very important statement about the world as it's become. That is to say, in short, the age of religion has been, re has been replaced with the age of power. Philosophically speaking, the age of religion has been replaced with the age of power. The notion of the good, of the just, of that which is moral, all of these belong to the age of metaphysics, and we simply just don't live in that world anymore. Now we live in a world where the person or the regime advances itself based upon its will to power and replaces the primacy of metaphysics itself. So when Nietzsche is saying God is dead, I can give you a pop culture anecdote for what he's saying. You might be familiar with the movie Terminator, Terminator 2. And there's a very memorable line from that movie for me where a young John Connor uh, is being protected by Arnold Schwarzenegger playing the Terminator. And the Terminator is about to break some guy's arm who's been accosting the young John Connor. And then he, he's going in for the kill, this killing machine. And as he's about to go in for the kill, young John Connor says, wait, 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 you, you can't just go around killing people. And the Terminator says, why? And you see this young postmodern, this child of his age, struggling to give the Terminator a reason why it's wrong to kill people. You, 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 just, you just can't. You just can't. Why? 
mean, you can almost hear. You can't use metaphysics as an answer anymore. You can't say, well, because it's against the Ten Commandments. We can't say that it's immoral even. Metaphysics have been supplanted as the highest ideals, the universals. In a world without morals, without, without any notion of the good, the only thing that can fill the void are power plays those who can basically advance themselves in and become the ultimate authority. And hence, that's why we've seen some of the totalitarian regimes of the 20th century and the atrocities that came forth from that. Well, they justified it. They justified their will to power. In fact, uh, some of them, they used uh, Nietzsche's Nietzsche's genealogy of morals as their handbook, just like a business person would use Machiavelli's The Prince as their instruction manual. Do you see why it's a perverted thing to do? You don't, you don't read these books as how-to models of advancement because it is a perversion of philosophy. Now, somebody might be listening and say, well, I, I kind of follow what you're saying. Okay, I get it, but isn't there, isn't there good power? Isn't there the use of power towards good ends? I mean, is power always bad? Does it always have to lead to ultimate corruption? And I would say that this is the utilitarian perspective, the utilitarian perspective that power is amoral. And it's not about the power itself, but rather what ends the power is purposed towards. Um, there's a great book by James Davison Hunter. He's a contemporary uh, professor, and he writes an important work called To Change the World. And in this book, it kind of upends some of our naive notions about changing the world. In it, he makes the case that while many of us might dream about changing the world, realistically, without power and influence, we simply won't change the world. So this is really kind of uh, the, the epitome of a realism as well as a utilitarianist understanding of power, that this side of the moon and this side of the fall, I might add, if we want to see good happen in the world, we will have to wield some degree of power. You know, that's a conclusion that I'm not in disagreement with. It makes sense. And I think it makes sense primarily because it is honest and it is wary of that as well. That without power, we cannot change the world and therefore just be very self-aware of my own propensity towards it. Now, and on the other hand, I think would completely disagree. Um, he would see that this utilitarian understanding of power is apt to be corrupted and will ultimately lead to our worst natures. Uh, maybe he's right. Maybe he's right. After all, the saying, uh, power corrupts and ultimate power corrupts ultimately. Um, now, and says this, the temptation to consider power an apt instrument for the proclamation of the gospel is the greatest of all. 
We keep hearing from others as well as say to ourselves that having power, provided it is used in the service of God and your fellow human beings, is a good thing. With this rationalization, crusades took place. Inquisitions were organized. I think where I would differ with Nowen is in his statement where he says, some people think that having power, provided it is used in the service of God and your fellow human beings, is a good thing. And indeed, there are people who think that. Where I would push back to such persons is to say power, provided it is used in the service of God and fellow human beings, is a necessary thing, but not necessarily a good thing. I don't know if I can bring myself, philosophically speaking, to say that power used for good purposes is a good thing. At best, I can only say it is a necessary thing to be handled with a great amount of skepticism, wariness, and I'll, I'll add with spiritual formation practices. Self-awareness, when it comes to handling power, is paramount. Again, my agenda is to make each and every one of us more self-aware of our bent towards this thing called power, our style. My agenda is to make us aware that every single one of us are seducible and that we might start off with a little and then we're given more because I think that's the way of the world. That's the way of growth and success. Perhaps you as ministers will experience that as you do well in your parish or if you do well in the marketplace that you will be given more and more responsibility. Perhaps responsibility is a euphemism for authority. And as we gradually accumulate more and more responsibility, we start to believe the hype about ourselves. We become seduced. And what I want to pitch at this point is that overcoming power, it does not always involve this singular defining act of downward mobility, like in the case of Nowen leaving Harvard and Yale to live amongst people at large. I mean, I'm not discounting that. That might be in the cards for some of us. I know even for myself that there were times where I had to make significant sacrificial moves in my life and vocation and calling. But what I want to say is it might not be through those big acts of downward mobility, but rather small everyday deeds of kindness, chesed, and something called kenosis. Again, back to Lord of the Rings, um, there's another quote. I, I, honestly, I don't know if this is Tolkien or Peter Jackson. I'll let you fact check that. But it is, it is in, at least in the movie, I believe. And the quote is this, Saruman believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check. Uh, that's, that's so good that I need to read that twice. Do you hear that, that understanding, that, that very thing that causes us to slip um, into darkness? Saruman believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check. Now, this is Gandalf talking, and he says, but that is not what I have found. In fact, it is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk 
that keep the darkness at bay, small acts of kindness and love. How do we combat evil power in the world? If the only recourse is great power to defeat great power, then I think we would be in a sorry state of affairs. If we uncritically think that that is the only way, it is possible for us, in, as they say, to become the monster in order to kill the monster. The small acts of kindness, these everyday deeds of faithfulness, of kenosis, which I mentioned before, now one actually mentions this. He mentions this. I continue in another selection. One of the greatest ironies of the history of Christianity is that its leaders constantly gave in to the temptation of power. Even though they continued to speak in the name of Jesus, who did not cling to his divine power but emptied himself, and became as we are. Now I read that selection from now on to draw your attention to that phrase, emptied himself, emptied himself. What does it mean to empty oneself? I wanna introduce you to this idea. In the Greek, uh, it is kenosis. It actually comes from Philippians chapter two, verses five to eight. It reads, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, or some translations say emptied himself, which I think is more accurate. Uh, that's the Greek word there, kenao, from which we derive kenosis, or kenotic theology. He made himself, or he emptied himself, rather, by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, I wish to clarify briefly this idea of self-emptying. Uh, hang on there. Is this implying that he stopped being God? And here, theologically, it's important to clarify that uh, Christ never stopped being God. If we asserted anything other than that, um, it would be heterodox. Uh, so in this idea of kenao, or emptying himself, kenosis, he was not stopping uh, his eternal existence as God. He, he did not stop being divine, but he was abandoning his divine advantages, perks, rights, and privileges. He did not lose his divinity. And it's important, I keep emphasizing this because there is this danger in practicing kenosis that we take it to a point where we think that we have to somehow uh, obliterate our selfhood. And it is possible, it is possible in a twisted way to, to go into self-denial even as we're trying to deny ourselves and take up our cross something there can get twisted. So there's a danger when we practice kenosis um, to, uh, to almost obliterate our being, our, our essence, who we are, our selfhood, uh, even as we are attempting to deny our advantages, rights, and perks, and privileges. So again, Christ ontologically, 
and that, that means in his being and in his essence. He remained divine eternally. He never ceased being divine. But there's a difference between operating out of a sound self-knowledge and identity, knowing who you are, versus throwing out your essence in the process and actually having nothing left to give. Kenosis is important for us to understand, not just Christologically, but also in its implications for us in our ministry. I leave you with two last takeaways. The first is to continually be wary of your own exercise of power, to pay attention to how you use it. Again, we are not all in positions of influence, but we still grasp for it in different ways, even if it is to receive things like attention or affection or even intimacy. We still have ways of working, maybe even manipulating to get what we want. That is an exercise of power. We will see it, albeit writ small, but one day, as we are given more and more, we can find it writ large. So that's the first thing to keep in mind, to always be wary of my own exercise of power. And the second thing is an antidote of sorts, to practice the small acts of kenosis. Yes, there might be big moments, big moments of downward mobility, but for now, from day to day, practice those small acts of faithfulness, of kindness, of downward mobility, of kenosis. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to learn more, visit us online at www.oikonomics.com. That's O-I-K-O-N-O-M-I-K-S dot com.